if you were going to try and explain to somebody what Jesus came to do, what would you say? Like, what was the purpose of Jesus' ministry? How would you describe his earthly ministry? Feel free to shout out answers. Rescue, brilliant. There are no wrong answers, I don't think. Build a bridge, fantastic. To save, excellent. Well, we're in Mark's gospel here. And if you were to read through Mark's gospel up to this point, you would see that Mark has got one clear answer, that he is really, really clear that Jesus came to do. And yes, he did come to do a lot of incredible things, healing and stuff like that. But Jesus' priority in Mark's gospel is to teach. It's really clear. That's what Jesus came to do. He says it himself. He specifically came to teach about the kingdom of God. That's how he starts in chapter 1. And at the very end of chapter 1, he says he needs to move on from a place to go and teach more because that's what he came to do. And he teaches in different ways. He teaches with his words, with his actions, with his healings, and with his preaching. Jesus really clearly came to teach, which, again, as a former primary school teacher, I'm very happy with. But Mark is also clear that anybody who wants to be in the kingdom Jesus is teaching about, well, they need to listen to what Jesus is teaching. They need to listen to his teaching and they need to obey it. Which when you see the kind of teacher that Jesus is, well, it's not hard to want to do, right? He's compassionate, he's powerful, he's enigmatic, he's brilliant, he's fantastic. He's an easy person to want to listen to and obey. Of course, we're going to want to listen to this teacher. But... There are some classrooms, if we're honest, that none of us want to learn in. And especially the classroom of pain and of suffering. The classroom that involves fear and hurt. None of us want to learn in that classroom. But the truth is that hurt and pain are some of the ways that Jesus teaches us the most. The most about ourselves, but also about him. And it is that classroom that Jesus uses to teach his disciples in, in the passage we're in today. So at the end of Mark chapter 4, verse 35 to 41, please keep it open to check that I'm really saying what this passage says. You don't want to hear me ramble on about nonsense. You want to check it really is in God's word. And he teaches his disciples here in the middle of a storm that makes them afraid for their lives. And it's a really unique bit of storytelling in the gospel of Mark. So far, if you know Mark's gospel, it's a really quick gospel. There's a lot of immediately's all the way through it. There's this and then the next thing and the next thing. He doesn't dwell on any one bit for very long. But here, in these verses, Mark kind of slows down for a little bit. And he really brings us into the perspective of the people in the boat. He, he wrote his gospel, we think, using eyewitness accounts, probably Peter's more than anybody else's. And we can see that there's a definite eyewitness account here because there's stuff that in this passage that only an eyewitness could have known happened. So have a look down the verse 35, the time of day that this happened. Um, The fact that the disciples took Jesus in the boat he was already in, and the fact there were other boats around them in verse 36. Even the description of the water coming into the boat in verse 37. The cushion that Jesus is sleeping on in verse 38, and the sarcasm of the disciples. Jesus' specific words in verse 39, and the disciples' response. It's as if Mark zooms us into this story to see what the disciples saw. And so we're going to walk through this passage together this morning, and we're going to see four things from this passage as we walk through it. And the first thing we see in this story is a mega 
storm. There is a mega storm. So after Jesus has finished teaching for the day, he says to his disciples that they need to go to the opposite side of the Sea of Galilee. Now, the Sea of Galilee is actually a massive lake. It isn't really a sea. It's just known as the Sea of Galilee because it's so big. And it's where a lot of the disciples have grown up in and around. So from back in chapter 1, we know that a bunch of the disciples had worked on this lake as fishermen. They knew this lake really well. And in verse 36, they're in a boat they're familiar with. They take the one that Jesus is already in, and they head off. So far, so straightforward, right? But then everything changes. In the NIV, verse 37 says, a furious squall came up. Now, I don't really know what a squall is. I live right in the center of the England, so therefore there's no sea near us. But you guys have seen furious squalls on the sea around here, right? Literally, apparently, the Greek here says a mega storm rises up. A massive storm. A next level storm. Now, big storms are really common in the Sea of Galilee at this time. Something to do with its geography. So I, I, don't really, I never really liked geography at school. So there's something to do with a lake that's at low altitude and mountains around a high altitude and then pressure and storms. That's as much as I can come to with that. Um, so the disciples, though, because they're used to this lake, they would have been used to storms on this lake. But this one's different. This is a mega storm. And it is like nothing they've ever seen before. And as a result, they are scared to death. Now, in the James household, we have a bit of a family motto. Uh, when it's raining, we've got to take our dog for a walk. Whatever it is, we don't want to go outside. The phrase is, ah, you're not made of sugar. You're not made of sugar. I mean, you're not going to melt away. Rain's not the end of the world, is it? The comedian Billy Connolly says it like this. I, I won't do the accent. I hate all those weathermen who tell you that rain is bad weather. There's no such thing as bad weather, just the wrong clothing. So get yourself a sexy raincoat and live a little. But what the disciples needed in the middle of this storm wasn't just a nicer raincoat, was it? Because this is a mega storm. And these experienced fishermen on this lake disciples are terrified. Oh, they've sailed in storms before, but never one like this. And they know they're going to die. The water's coming into the boat, and the boat is going down. Oh, and to make it worse, where's Jesus? On a 13-man boat that is sinking, you need all hands on deck, literally. And where is he? Oh, he's in the stern, in the back of the boat, having a nap. A nap in this storm. How on earth can Jesus do that? And so the disciples go to him and they cry out to him. They wake him up in their frustration and desperation. They wake him up saying, teacher, don't you care if we drown? They don't deny that they're scared or that the storm is big. They just accept they need help. And so they turn to Jesus for some help. Maybe an extra pair of hands to bail out water to save the ship. And in a million years, they couldn't have expected what happened next. Because the next thing we see is a mega calm. A mega calm. In the middle of this loud, raging storm, 12 wet, scared, probably angry and shouting men wake Jesus up. So perhaps they want him to pray for them. 
or they want him to help throw water out of the boat. We're not told. But instead, Jesus does something they would never have expected. He stands up and he rebukes the wind. And he says to the waves, quiet, be still. He tells off the weather like it's a naughty child. In fact, he uses the same words that he uses in chapter 1 and chapter 3 to cast out evil spirits. He says, be quiet and stay quiet. Which any one of us could do, right? I mean, I used to do it as a kid all the time. I'd wander out in the middle of rainstorms. It was break time, and I was really enjoying the football I was playing. I didn't want to go inside, and it started to rain. I'd stand there and say, rain, rain, go away. Come again another day. We've all probably tried it, maybe. Am I the only one who's done that? But when I do it, nothing happens. But when Jesus just speaks to the wind and the waves, they stop. There is a great calm in the greek literally a mega calm in verse 39 the kind of calm that is instant there's not even little waves still happening there's no ripples nothing the sea that had been raging and foaming a moment before calms into a smooth glass-like surface and then jesus asked those two questions that ollie drew our attention to earlier in verse 40 why are you so afraid do you still have no faith And this all leads to a third thing we see, which is a mega fear. A mega fear. You see, the the disciples had been afraid of the storm. But now, after what just happened, they're more afraid of the person in the boat with them than they had been of the storm itself. Because of what he can do. Verse 41, they were terrified, literally mega fear, and asked each other, who is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. But that begs the question, why does this make them so scared? Like, surely this is a good thing. This guy who's in the boat with them is just on their side. He's just helped them out. Why are they suddenly afraid of him? Why this mega fear of the one who's on their team? Well, it's all about what this has told them about who Jesus is. Now, I'm going to do something here that I think is going to split the room age-wise. I discovered this when I preached this uh, back in Avenue. Um, and there's a certain cut-off point of age where people don't get this reference. So apologies in advance for anyone younger than this. Okay, I'm going to describe somebody to you by what they do, and from how I describe them, I want you to tell me who it is. I like interaction, sorry. So who is this? He's faster than a speeding bullet, he's stronger than a locomotive, and can leap tall buildings in a single bound. Who is it? Yeah, phew, Superman. It's Superman. Now, for those of you who are younger than me, uh, that is how Superman used to be described in TV shows and stuff. That's the way he kind of came across. And if you knew that description of him, I didn't need to tell you it was Superman because by telling you what he does, you know who he is. Because there's only one person who can do that. And it's the same here with Jesus. These guys would have known that the only one who could control nature like this was God. If you've got your Bibles handy, flip back quite a few pages throughout the middle of your Bible to Psalm 107. Keep a finger in Mark 4, but turn back to Psalm 107, and we'll read from verse 23. And I realize I've got this in the NIV rather than ESV, so let me get this up. Psalm 107. What page is it, sorry? 
506 Cabra Ollie. Thank you very much. And we're going to read from verse 23. So Psalm 107 on page, in page 507, actually, uh, page, verse 23. Some went down to the sea in ships, doing business on the great waters. They saw the deeds of the Lord, his wondrous works in the deep. For he commanded and raised the stormy wind which lifted the waves of the sea. They mounted up to heaven. They went down to the depths. Their courage melted away in their evil plight. They reeled and staggered like drunken men and were at their wits' end. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He made the storm be still, and the waves of the sea were hushed. If we just take this psalm on its own, who is the only person who can calm storms? The Lord. God. In fact, all through the Old Testament, the only person who has this kind of power over this kind of weather is God. And so if Jesus can do things that only God can do, who is Jesus? He's God. He's the God who made the universe, who spoke creation into being, who is holy and who's awe-inspiring and who is a consuming fire. And he's in the boat with them. He's in the boat with these sinful disciples. He's right there, and this terrifies them. When they ask, who is this? That's a rhetorical question. They know who this is. It's the only one who can do what Jesus has just done. And in the first three and a bit chapters of Mark, Jesus has done amazing things so far. He's healed. He's driven out demons. He's taught incredibly. He's forgiven people, but nothing has made the disciples ask this question about Jesus until this storm. And frustratingly, that's where Mark leaves it. I want a bit more detail. I want some more of the disciples' chats and their communication with each other. They try and work this out. In fact, what we just get is more daftness from the disciples in the chapters to come. And we're left with the disciples here fearing a great fear, mega afraid of Jesus, far more scared of him than they ever were of the storm. So what are we to make of all this? What does this have anything to do with us 2,000 years later on? Well, stories like this help you and I to think about our lives. To help us in the middle of whatever storms we're going through now, or whatever storms we might face in the future. Because we will all face mega storms that will make us fear in one way or other if you haven't yet just stay alive a bit longer and you will probably though not storms on an actual sea i mean maybe for some of you guys here i don't know what your hobbies are but i doubt if there are many of us many of us here who are worried about storms at sea but we are more worried than we ever thought possible about our children or our finances or our jobs, our future, our exams, or our friendship groups, or our workload, or our marriages, people we love, that diagnosis that might just be around the corner, our mental health at the moment, the cost of living, the threat of global war. Some things in our lives loom so large that like the disciples, we just don't know how we're ever going to get through them. And if we're honest, some of those storms undisciple us, 
right? They expose fear and doubt of God in our hearts. Or, perhaps if we're really honest, they make us feel like while the storm's raging, where's Jesus? Oh, he's asleep. Isn't that just perfect? We're in the middle of a storm fighting for our lives and you're asleep? We're nearly dying here and you're sleeping. And like the disciples, what the storms draw out of our hearts isn't heroic faith, but actually hidden pockets of unbelief. But unbelief in what? Well, that is what is at the heart of the disciples' question. Well, the heart of Jesus' question, sorry, back to his disciples. Why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? Notice that Jesus doesn't say they shouldn't be afraid. The storm is scary. The storms of life are big and scary and overwhelming sometimes. But the fear that those storms can create means that we sometimes can no longer see clearly truths about Jesus. And as a result, unbelief and doubts about him come to the surface. And we see that really clearly with the disciples here. What is it that the disciples don't have faith in? It may well have been Jesus' ability to calm the storm, but that's not what they ask, is it? Have a look at verse 38. What is it they say to him? They say, Jesus... Do you not care that we're perishing? Don't you care if we drown? They didn't doubt Jesus' power. They doubted Jesus' care. They knew he was powerful. They've seen that again and again and again in this gospel so far. But what they doubt in the middle of the storm was whether Jesus really cared about them. What the storm draws out of the disciples' hearts, and let's be honest, so often our own, is an accusation. Jesus, you don't care about me. Tim Keller once said this, if you don't have a God who has power over the storms, then all you have is storms, which I hope we agree with. That's a great truth. And we all know that God has got power. But for some of us, that isn't the question. That isn't what we really doubt. What we really doubt is, God, do you really care how, do we, how can we ever trust in a God who allows all of this stuff to happen to us? Who has got the power to stop all of this suffering and these storms from coming into our lives and yet doesn't? Or even worse, like verse 35, who deliberately leads us into these storms himself. And so for some of us, we're not struggling or we won't struggle with whether Jesus has power over the storms we're in. We struggle with whether Jesus has love for us in the storms. And like the disciples, our questions aren't about his power. It's about his care. We know Jesus can stop storms. We just don't know what it means when he doesn't. It's not a question of power. It's a question of care. It's what the serpent made Eve believe in the garden, wasn't it? God doesn't really care about you. He's holding out on you. Now he's holding something better from you. Do this thing. It's better. Are we there right now? Are any of us feeling just a little bit of that right now? We might find that hard to admit to other people sometimes, afraid that it will make us look weak or vulnerable in some way. But the truth is, God, I don't trust you right now. I don't believe you're for me. I don't believe you care about me. 
and I don't know if you love me. I don't doubt you've got power. What I doubt about is that you even care. Well, if that's how we're feeling, when that's how we feel in the future, because there are times we might all feel like this at points, what do we do? How are we to react? And it's here that the disciples, for once, are an excellent example to follow. Because they could have stayed away from Jesus in this storm, couldn't they? Either trying to sort their own problems out, because they're experienced to all this, they've done this before, or because they're in a bit of a mood with him for having a a nap. But they don't do that instead, do they? They tell each other they're terrified, and then they go to Jesus and cry out to him. They don't hide their fear from each other, Instead, together, they take their fear to Jesus and they tell him bluntly, clearly, exactly how they feel in that moment. There's no filter to the disciples' words here, is there? There's no theology to warm Jesus up in any way. They just tell Jesus. In fact, they're a bit sarcastic with Jesus, aren't they? Have a look at verse 38. It's a bit rude. Teacher, do you not care that we're perishing? There's a bit of passive aggression there, isn't there? It's a a bit rude. But Jesus, Jesus is okay with that. Jesus doesn't care how his disciples come to him. He just wants them to come to him. And that's true for us. If our calmness or our manners or our fear are stopping us from coming to Jesus, we need to get over that and just come to Jesus as we are. Because how do we know that Jesus doesn't care about their rudeness? How can we tell that Jesus isn't bothered by their rudeness? He just wants them to come to him. Well, it's because when they're rude to Jesus, who is it Jesus tells off? It's not them. It's the storm. It's the thing that they're afraid of. We have little faith, but his rebuke is never to us. It's to what's threatening us. There is no blame on the disciples for being afraid. Being afraid is not the opposite of faith. It's okay to be scared on a sinking ship. But what faith does with that fear is it turns to Jesus with that fear. If we don't trust that Jesus can help us, we won't go to him. Even if the help we think we need isn't the help Jesus is about to give. As I said, the disciples seem to want to wake Jesus up not to rebuke the storm. They're never expecting that. They just want help bailing the boat out. And Jesus says, I can do far more than that. You see, storms give Jesus an opportunity to show who he is in a way that calm waters never can. If the disciples had never gone through this storm, they'd never have seen this truth about Jesus. This storm was the classroom that Jesus used to tell his disciples truths about him they could never learn in any other way. I had the privilege of catching up with someone last summer who I've not seen for probably over 20 years. And she was telling me about how hard the last 20 years have been. So without warning, her husband walked out on her and her teenage son one day. As a result of all that, she found all sorts of financial dodgy dealings her husband would be doing that left her in a right mess. Her son did not handle this well at all, went massively off the rails. At the same time, she battled loneliness and temptation in a way she'd never thought possible. And church, this refuge, this haven, suddenly became a difficult place for her. She felt the stigma of being a a divorcee. And she's a single mum in a family-orientated church. That was difficult. 
And you could see the hurt on the pain on her face as she spoke to me about this. This clearly was horrible last 20 years. And then she paused and said, but you know, I'd go through it all again if it meant having the same experience of sweetness of Jesus. And that hit me like a ton of bricks. <laughs> because the truth is, I want smooth sailing. I want comfort. I want an easy life. I want Jesus to teach me easy lessons on plain sailing. But Jesus loves me too much to let me have that. He wants to show me more of him. And sometimes that means taking me into the storms of life to teach us truths about him we can never learn anywhere else. But still, I haven't really answered the question the disciples asked. You might agree with all of that, but I haven't answered the question, how do we know that Jesus cares? How do we know that he isn't just heartlessly teaching us like a really bad teacher, kind of like, oh, it's for your own good, you must learn this lesson, strict but uncaring, determined to do what's right or needed, but without any happiness or joy in it. How do we really know Jesus cares? Well, if I'm right, you looked at a part of the Bible last week that this passage echoes massively. Jonah chapter 1, is that right? Phew, you didn't lie to me, Ollie. Excellent. And there are loads of similarities in this passage to that chapter in Jonah. In chapter 1 of Jonah, there is another mega storm. There is another set of experienced but terrified sailors. And you find another man of God sleeping in the back of a boat on a cushion who's got to be woken up to actually do something. And by the end of Jonah chapter 1, there is a mega calm and a group of sailors who are mega afraid. But in that story, Jonah has got to be thrown overboard into the sea to his death in order for the calm to come, isn't he? The storm has come because of Jonah's sin and disobedience. And so he says to the sailors, the only way you will survive this storm is if I die. So they throw him into the sea and the mega calm comes. But Jonah doesn't die, as you know. He spends three days and nights in the belly of a great fish before he's vomited back into the land of the living. And in Mark's gospel, Jesus doesn't get thrown into the storm in this chapter. But by the end of Mark's gospel, he will. You see, the end of Mark, we see Jesus hanging on a Roman cross. And on that cross, he drowns under the sin of the world, drowning under the judgment of God, facing up to all of God's wrath and fury for our sins. And the only way to win an eternal calm to our lives, to our relationship with God, the only way to get an eternal mega calm for us was for Jesus to say, the only way you'll survive this storm is if I die. You see, that is the story of Jesus. He is the greater Jonah, one who wasn't thrown into the depths of the sea in the storm, but into the depths of the storm of God's justice and holiness when faced up to the depths of our sin. Because he loves us for us. And so when we look at Jesus hanging on the cross, gasping for breath, suffering the wrath of God in our place, and we say to him, Jesus, you don't care about us. Jesus says, what more do I have to do to show you that I care? See, God hasn't tried to get off the hook when it comes to your suffering. Instead, he wrote himself into the story and put himself onto the hook itself. 
And whatever the reasons are for why Jesus allows or leads us through storms, and there may well be hundreds of them, we can never address all of those in one sermon, but I can promise you the cross tells you the one reason Jesus leads you into the storm isn't because he doesn't care. The one reason it can never be is because Jesus doesn't care about you and God doesn't care about you. Because the cross proves once and for all, he cares far more than we could imagine. And if you're not someone here this morning who's following Jesus today, there is one clear reason I can tell you why Jesus leads you through storms. One reason above everything else, and that is to make you come to your senses. To see how helpless you are without God on your side. To show you how useless you are so that you would come to him for the first time and ask for his help. Every storm you go through if you don't love Jesus as your savior is an invite from him to stop trying to bail yourself out of your own sinking and to look to him on the cross and ask for help. Because he promises he'll give it. And so in the middle of whatever storm we go through, if we are his children, we don't need to doubt this truth. Mark tells us this story so that we can grow trust in Jesus in the middle of the storm. We have got mega storms in our lives. Who knows what's around the corner? And we can fear mega fear as a result of it, but we can praise God that we have a mega savior, a savior in our storms and for our futures. Because this story in Mark 4 also points us forward. And all through the Bible, as we said, the sea is there as a picture. And part of the picture of the raging sea is about rebellion and separation from God. And Jesus here in Mark 4 calms the raging sea. All that rebelling against God and raging against him, refusing to let God be God, Jesus calms that. But fast forward to the book of Revelation, the end of the Bible. And there the writer of that book, John, describes the new creation our future home if we trust in him. And in chapter 21, he says this. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. You see, in Mark chapter 4, Jesus says to the raging sea, be quiet. On the cross, he accomplishes that perfectly. But there is a day coming, one day in the future, when he will return to earth and call all of us who trust in him to be with him forever. And when he will say to the sea that to everything that terrifies us or could separate us from God or threatens to overwhelm us, he turns to it and he'll say, be gone, go away. And that day is coming. And it's coming because in a world with mega storms and mega fear, we have a mega savior who has won an eternal mega calm for each of us. A savior who really cares for us and is in every storm with us and is willing and able and desperate to teach us things about him and ourselves through it. And who's got power over it all and will one day wipe away every storm and every tear and every fear from your eyes. That's good news. We don't just have a savior who cares, but is powerless. That would be lovely, but useless. We don't just have a savior who's powerful, but doesn't care. That would be terrifying. We've got a savior who cares deeply and is all powerful over all of it. That is great news for whatever storm we're going through. So if you're facing storms today, when you face storms in the future, fight the temptation to believe the lie that God doesn't care. He cares far more than we can imagine. 
Tell others you're feeling it and cry out to God with them. Don't hide it from other people. Don't sail through these storms alone. The disciples learn together this incredible truth about Jesus. So tell someone else. Cry out with them to Jesus, even sarcastically. Don't you care? I'm drowning. And then look to the cross, to the mega savior, and find comfort in the truth that he cares far more than we could ever imagine and has done far more to make it right than we could ever dream. And then remember that we belong to a God who's made the heavens and the sea and the earth, who speaks to the wind and the waves and they still obey him. And to a God who has all the power and he cares about you far more than you could ever imagine. And he wants to teach us more about him than we could ever dream of. Let's pray, shall we? Father, we want to thank you for your son. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for how he showed you so clearly to us time and time again. Thank you that he is the very image of you, that we get to see what he's like. Thank you that he has got power over the storm, but more importantly than that, that he also cares, cares deeply about us. And I pray, Father, that for any of us here who are going through storms of life or who are going to go through storms in the future, I pray that you would help us to never doubt that care and therefore never stay away from you out of whatever reason. I pray that we would trust your love for us more than anything else. Thank you for Jesus and the cross. Thank you that there you drowned under the weight of the judgment that we deserve, that I deserve in my place because you love us. For God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son that whoever trusts in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. Lord, we want that. If there are any people here this morning who don't yet know you as their saviour, I pray, Lord, that you would do whatever necessary to wake them up. Do whatever is needed to wake those people up. Whatever storms you need to throw at them, Lord, I pray that you would do that. And give us the ability and the power and the confidence to point to Jesus, the God over the storms, who loves them so much. We ask all these things, not so that we can boast, so this church here can boast, but so that you can get all the glory and all the praise. Amen.